This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it, as well as these days, Texas SB8. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Shaw. I'm Melissa Murray. And I'm Leah Littman. And we've got a banger of an episode in store for you since, as we noted on our brief 15-minute mini-episode from about 10 days ago, the Supreme Court has added two cases regarding Texas SB8 to the court's November calendar. In order to make room for the time it will take to cover these cases, we're going to flag two items of news and then proceed straight to case previews, because the first week of the November sitting has more than just the cases on SB8, even though those cases alone would make it a blockbuster argument session. Okay, so the first piece of news we wanted to flag involves a horrifying sequence of events in Oklahoma on Thursday night. So basically, John Grant was on death row in Oklahoma, scheduled to be executed on Thursday. But on Wednesday, the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals stayed his execution because he was one of the plaintiffs in a case challenging Oklahoma's lethal injection protocol, about which there are very serious concerns. The state of Oklahoma asked the court to lift the Tenth Circuit stay, and the court did, voting 5-3 with Gorsuch recused and with no explanation. And this vote had the effect of restoring Grant's execution to the calendar, despite, once again, the very significant risks that attached to Oklahoma's lethal injection protocol, risks that meant there was a significant chance he would be executing using a method that is akin to being tortured to death. Indeed, Oklahoma's last two executions were horribly botched. Oklahoma has not made significant changes to its lethal injection protocols since then. So the Supreme Court intervened to reinstate a scheduled execution that had been stayed because of real concerns about that execution. And lo and behold, it was a ghastly procedure in which Grant convulsed, vomited repeatedly, was an obvious and evident agony for the duration of the execution. And it seems like, you know, maybe the court should have been more concerned with the claim, not vacated the stay that allowed Grant to present the claim. You know, I, I got to say, you know, basically, I, I think that this is what I'm going to point to next time someone says, because I feel like I hear this all the time, what's the big deal about the shadow docket? The court has to have the power to act quickly in certain kinds of cases. This was just an unconscionable intervention by the court to upset the status quo, which was that there was a stay in effect with truly catastrophic consequences. Another piece of news that we wanted to flag for you is uh, maybe in the vein of non-news, and it's specifically what on earth is happening with the main vaccine mandate? So 
as you know, Maine has required public employees to be vaccinated or they will not be able to perform their jobs or work. And so this is obviously an issue that has been seen around the country and has been the subject of other kinds of applications to the court for emergency relief. And here, too, there were emergency applications to enjoin the enforcement of the main vaccination mandate, and the First Circuit upheld the mandate. Um, it is notable that this particular mandate was challenged on religious liberty grounds. That's kind of different from some of the other challenges that we've seen over the course of the last few months, the Second Circuit, the Seventh Circuit. Those did not have religious liberty claims in it. Um, in any event, the main vaccination mandate went into effect on Friday, and the court still hasn't acted on the request for emergency relief. And we're recording this on Friday afternoon. The case is called Doe's versus Mills. And Stephen Macy of The Economist speculates on Twitter that the inclusion of those religious liberty claims has complicated things somewhat and perhaps suggests that there is some infighting at one first street about this as opposed to the sort of reflexive upholdings that we saw in the Seventh Circuit and the Second Circuit. Yeah, they were too busy, you know, allowing Oklahoma to torture this person to death in order to act on, you know, this emergency application. So, you know, it's, it's really a question of priorities here. And our boy Sam Capitolito, you know, just needed to deal with that Oklahoma stay before turning to this challenge. Um, I did want to highlight a, an email we received from a listener suggesting an alternative nickname for this Justice Alito persona that Kate, you identified on our last show, this persona of course, is Justice Alito's conspiracy theory that the real victims in society are the prosecutors who are no longer able to quickly execute people in the same way they used to be able to do, and that there is a, quote, a guerrilla war against the death penalty, and that this is cause for concern. Anyway, Kate dubbed this Capitolito. A listener suggested maybe the better word would be Killito. Um, we put it to you, listeners. Like These are questions that we cannot and will not try to answer for you. I have to say, I think Capitolito is very clever, Kate. I, I also, I think Capitolito. I'm willing to see it. I like Kilito. I think the listener actually has a better. A Capitolito rolls off the tongue mm -hmm, in a way mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that maybe I just like saying it more. We workshop these for a while, so I think we'll keep trying out both. After we recorded this episode, things started burning up. Jonas Brothers style over at One First Street, and maybe the rest of the earth too. The Supreme Court had a busy Friday evening. We'll cover these developments more in future episodes, but wanted to note them now for you. First, in Doe's versus Mills, the Supreme Court declined to issue an emergency injunction to prevent Maine from enforcing its vaccination requirement for public employees, leaving the vaccination requirement in place. The challengers went to the shadow docket, asking the court for an emergency injunction. A majority of the Supreme Court denied their request. Three justices, Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito, would have granted the challengers' request for an injunction. Justice Barrett, joined by Justice Kavanaugh, agreed that an emergency injunction should not issue, at least for now. She said the Supreme Court would not grant an emergency injunction because the case reached the court on the shadow docket. And if plaintiffs were entitled to extraordinary relief on the shadow docket, that could force the court's hand to decide questions or issues before the court actually wanted to decide those questions. That is, before the court decided to grant a case to be heard on its regular docket. So it's possible, if and when this issue gets to the Supreme Court in the ordinary course, that Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh would join the dissenters, but it's hard to know or say, since they seem to be relying on discretionary judgments and some set of unspecified criteria to decline to issue the injunction here. 
Of note, Justice Barrett called the Supreme Court shadow docket the emergency docket, clearly a hat tip to Justice Alito's speech responding to criticism of the shadow docket. They're apparently trying to rebrand it as the emergency docket, to which I say, stop trying to make the emergency docket happen. It's not going to happen particularly because we don't know what criteria Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh are applying to grant emergency relief besides some consideration of the merits, so not super transparent, which is why we're going to continue calling it the shadow docket. Second, the court granted certiorari in several cases that will be heard later this term, and oh boy, are there some doozies. First, the Supreme Court agreed to hear several cases challenging the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate greenhouse gases. Planet Earth is thinking, this is fine. Formally, the petitions asked the court to decide whether the relevant statutes authorize the EPA to curb greenhouse gases, but at least one of the petitions asked the court to decide whether Congress could give the EPA this authority and asked the court to revive the so-called non-delegation doctrine, which limits Congress's ability to give federal agencies the power to enact rules governing private citizens. We've actually got an episode in the hopper on this topic, which will contain a more in-depth discussion. So stay tuned for that. For now, I also want to say that even if the Supreme Court doesn't formally decide these cases on constitutional grounds by holding that Congress lacks the authority to give agencies the power to make binding rules, those constitutional ideas are very much in the background and driving these cases in big ways. Specifically, the arguments about why the court should read the statute not to allow the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases sound in constitutional concerns with giving agencies that kind of authority, the authority to regulate private parties and in doing so to decide major questions. Second, the Supreme Court agreed to hear some cases about whether some Republican-led states can intervene to defend and possibly reinstate the Trump administration's public charge rule that the Biden administration declined to defend. The public charge rule would have excluded immigrants on several grounds, including the chance that they might use non-cash public assistance, such as Medicaid. Several courts had invalidated the public charge rule, finding, among other things, that it discriminated against persons with disabilities or was arbitrary and capricious, and the Biden administration declined to defend the rule and challenge those rulings, which are what the Republican-led states are trying to do now. Okay, so now on to the segment of our podcast, a recurring segment in which we discuss SB8. So... As we mentioned in our very short emergency podcast, the court has agreed to hear two cases, the one filed by the abortion providers and the one filed by the United States that involve challenges to SB8. We are becoming something of an SB8 stand podcast, which is unfortunate that it's come to this. But in any event, as you, <laughs> the love is mutual. Jonathan Mitchell loves us. We love him. Right. It goes in both it directions. for sure. Um, <laughs> So as you know, listeners, SB 8 is the Texas law that has effectively shut down abortion access in that state. The law allows anyone to sue an abortion provider who performs an abortion more than six weeks after a person's last period and to sue anyone who assists someone in obtaining an abortion or providing abortion more than six weeks after a person's last period. Because providers face liability in the tens of thousands of dollars, as well as possibly being shut down in the event that they are sued, not to mention the fact that for professional licensing purposes, they also have to disclose that they have been sued. Uh, Basically, with all of this in mind, providers have essentially stopped performing abortions more than six weeks after a person's last period. And that means that they are not providing the vast majority of sought abortions. Formally, the questions in these cases are about the threshold procedural 
issues that will decide whether a court can reach the merits of the challenges to SB 8. That is, whether a court can decide whether SB 8 is unconstitutional and whether a court can enjoin the law, that is, prevent the law from being enforced or make it so it's like the law doesn't exist at all. But of course, although central to the case are these threshold procedural questions, the justices' views on the underlying merits questions might creep into their analysis of the procedural questions for any number of reasons, right? So if you think it's a problem for a state to effectively prohibit people from exercising constitutional rights without any prospect of judicial review, but you don't actually think there's a constitutional right to decide whether to have an abortion prior to viability, then you might be fine with SB 8, but you might not be fine with a law that restricts, say, the right to own or carry a firearm. Just to say. (laughs) For example, plucking from thin air. So I do think the merits questions lurk. But we should be clear that in important respects, whether SB 8 is constitutional is not squarely before the court. Again, though, that doesn't mean that these decisions or the questions that they surface are not important, and it doesn't mean that these decisions will not have substantive effects on the ground. It also doesn't mean that the cases and the oral arguments won't give us some hints as to what particular justices might do vis-a-vis the future of constitutional protections for abortion. So, for example, if the justices don't allow either of these lawsuits to proceed, that might be a pretty good indication that this court is in a position to allow states to bulldoze over Roe and essentially nullify its protections, perhaps because some majority of justices, like the author of SB 8, thinks that Roe is wrong and a judicially invented right. Um, By contrast, if the justices allow either one of these lawsuits to proceed, we don't really know what they are going to do about the substantive protections of Roe. That is, what kinds of abortion restrictions they might say actually do violate the Constitution, because all they will have done here is to say that you get to go to court and have your argument made that this law violates the Constitution. So this is kind of a mixed bag in terms of what it may mean going forward, but I do think we will get some hints of what the future holds. Yeah, and I think this is important to clarify for many reasons, but I'll just highlight one now. There is a possibility that we are hurtling toward a universe where the Supreme Court allows one or both of the lawsuits against SBH to proceed and therefore generates a ton of press about how principled, institutionalist, and moderate the court is. Before the court comes back in Dobbs, the Mississippi abortion case scheduled for argument exactly one month after the SB argument, and in that Mississippi case, eviscerates the protections of Roe, either by overruling that decision, or by allowing states to ban abortions that occur before viability. Well, here's an even more kind of frightening prospect. They could allow one or both of the lawsuits to proceed, again, looking moderate, consensus-driven, whatever. And then they could do the sort of minimalist approach to Dobbs, which is just to sort of reorder viability as a marker. And then everyone in the media will be, Roe is saved, Roe is saved. And we will be getting emails from all the men's who tell us that we are being hysterical ladies and there's nothing wrong here. Lots of ladies can have abortions, but we, of course, will be like, that's not actually what's happening. And that will be the story. The court has saved Roe when, in fact, the court has actually decimated the landscape by sowing confusion about what is actually constitutional after viability is eviscerated as a marker. Yeah. um, And we'll certainly talk more about that possibility later. But just to flag now, That possibility that states can prohibit abortions that occur before viability is a theory that Texas put forward as to why SB 8 is even constitutional. So if the court does that, quote, minimalist ground in Dobbs, it is not minimalist at all and opening the door to pre-viability bans, full stop. Um, 
Okay, but speaking of the author of SB8, it appears that Strict Scrutiny fanboys, Jonathan Mitchell and Samuel Alito, will be reunited for the oral arguments in these cases. Mitchell, the author of SB8, is representing some of the interveners in these lawsuits, um, parties who asked the courts to allow them to intervene and participate in the litigation surrounding the law. The court granted his request to intervene and participate in the argument, and he is scheduled to do so. This is what I am thinking in my Halloween fantasy brain. Squid game, but make it oral argument. Like Justice Kagan just goes line by line, through the briefs, Jonathan Mitchell has filed in the litigation and asks him hypotheticals based on those sentences. Like, which opinions of ours are you free to ignore? Or what other rights can you box out the judiciary from enforcing? Or could a city in Texas or Texas itself authorize anyone to sue a plaintiff in SB8 litigation for $20,000 payable to abortion providers and delegate that to private individuals, not the state? Just some questions. Okay, that would be kind of amazing. <laughs> she just like sat there and she started reading it. <laughs> I am manifesting Justice Kagan just reading reading portions of the brief at argument. And in an ideal universe, I would see her face while she's doing it. After all, they are called opinions for a reason. You just manifest Justice Breyer just like, please just cede all your time to Justice Kagan so she can that maximally will never do happen, this. Kate, oh, but Kate, I'm manifesting it. Here's, here's what I will manifest from Justice Breyer. Anytime Jonathan Mitchell opens his mouth, Justice Breyer is allowed to say the following and only the following. That's just like your opinion, man. And then he can stop. (laughs) I will allow that. Yes. Um, Nothing else. To be clear, the hypotheticals that Leah posed in the guise of one Elena Kagan um, aren't actually that fanciful. These are not hyperbolic hypotheticals. Um, In fact, Jezebel reports that a Texas Republican state representative wrote a letter to Texas Attorney General Paxton asking him whether private individuals were required to recognize same-sex marriages. And the letter invoked, dun-dun-dun, Jonathan Mitchell's theory, the theory behind SB 8, that federal courts don't strike down laws. They only have the power to enjoin state officials or offices from enforcing them. So, Thank you, Jonathan Mitchell, for putting that out in the ether. Amazing. I feel like also we should just underscore one thing, which is that the things we were saying, not all of them, but most of them were in the briefs that Mitchell filed, right? So he literally wrote the line, we have boxed out the judiciary from hearing cases about whether this law is constitutional. And Supreme Court opinions aren't the law. They are called think italicized yes. opinions, opinions. It was italicized. after all <laughs> so this sounds absurd it's not this is verbatim from his earlier brief I, I think this is a good point to interject like most of the time when the men's slide into our dms to tell us that we're being hyperbolic hysterical ladies with lady parts we actually later get proven correct or we were already just citing from the papers <laughs> anyway Right. Right. Like, of course, no one would actually argue that they don't have to comply with Obergefell, ladies. That's insane. Well, it turns out, it turns out. Along the, you know, lines in Jonathan Mitchell's brief vibe, um, Georgetown Law Appellate Immersion Clinic's Hannah Mullen had this hilarious observation that I just need to put on the air because it both made me laugh and has also given me night terrors uh, every night since I've read it. Um, And she said, staring Justice Kagan in the face and arguing that I've outsmarted the Supreme Court is actually my recurring nightmare. And it seems like that that is about 
to be the world that, you know, some Texas officials and Jonathan Mitchell will be living in. Again, maybe that's the reason that Jonathan Mitchell's brief before the court is a little more toned down than what we have seen from him before. So rather than saying, checkmate, libs, we boxed you out, it actually goes through all of the doctrine and makes arguments about why these different suits can't proceed. So a much more measured tone than what we have seen before from Jonathan Mitchell. It is definitely more measured, but in its sort of different stylistic way, it is still inclined to say the quiet part loud, right? Like at one point, the brief says, it is not that SB8 is chilling providers. It is you, Supreme Court, your grant in Dobbs <laughs> that is chilling them. And sort of left unspoken but obviously implied is that Roe is at best on life support and that's why they're scared to engage in conduct that is technically – Presently constitutionally protected, but, you know, there's like this kind of time travel dimension to the argument or something like they know it's not long for this world. Hmm. Kate, we cannot expect a sea change this quickly. Like, I mean, (laughs) you were asking for a 180 degree turnaround. And I say we give points for progress. And we definitely (laughs) made progress here. If it is measured in tone, it is not measured in substance. Okay, we'll give them them some tone points. But tone is important. It is. It is. Tone is important. So at the argument, we will be able to hear Mitchell's tone in person. Um, But the oral argument is also noteworthy because it is going to be the first argument by Elizabeth Prelogger as the Senate-confirmed Solicitor General of the United States. She was just confirmed on Thursday as SG. Elizabeth is the second woman to hold this post. Uh, Senate confirmed, that is. Uh, At least one other woman, New York Solicitor General Barbara Underwood, who will also argue during the sitting, was the acting Solicitor General for a time. But the first Senate-confirmed female SG was Prelogger's former boss, Justice Elena Kagan. Elizabeth was one of the clerks who clerked for Kagan during her first year on the court. Uh, And, you know, they both made their debuts as SG in big cases. U.S. v. Texas is huge. Justice Kagan made her debut in the re-argument of Citizens United. So um, Prelogger has big shoes to fill, but I have no doubt she's going to do a tremendous job. So now maybe let's go to an overview of the legal questions in these cases. They're being argued on the same day, but they are two separate cases. And the first case is Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson. Okay, so this is the case filed by the abortion providers against several state officials, so that's state court judges, clerks, attorney general, other state officials, as well as a private individual affiliated with an organization that set up a website to collect tips about unlawful abortions in order to facilitate lawsuits under SB 8. The provider sought an injunction that would prevent the officials or Dixon, who's the private individual, from enforcing the law, um, including preventing them from docketing or processing cases filed under SB 8. The district court denied the defendant's motion to dismiss, uh, and the defendants appealed since several of these defendants argued they were immune from lawsuit, and you can immediately appeal such a denial. So the Fifth Circuit stayed the district court proceedings days before the district court was set to consider the provider's request for an injunction, and the Supreme Court refused to vacate that stay or to grant the providers an emergency injunction, which is what happened, you know, that basically allowed the law to go into effect on September 1st. Right. So the main arguments about why this lawsuit cannot go forward turn on fairly technical questions about federal court and procedure. And so we'll just briefly explain them. So bear with us for a little bit. The first important doctrine to keep in mind for oral argument is sovereign immunity. So the Supreme Court has interpreted the 11th Amendment and the general structure of the Constitution to prohibit private individuals from suing states without the state's consent. 
However, in order to ensure that the states are still bound by the rule of law, the Supreme Court in Ex parte Young says that private individuals can sue a state official who has some connection with the enforcement of the act and through that suit of that state official can seek prospective injunctive relief against the official, so i.e. an injunction to prevent them from enforcing the law. But that's basically the basis for SB 8. If the state official does not have some connection with the enforcement of the act, then the plaintiff is merely making him a party as a representative of the state and thereby attempting to make the state a party in violation of the 11th Amendment. So because SB 8 delegates its enforcement to these private individuals, what the abortion providers have done is sued those state court judges and the state officials. And the question here is whether there is a sufficient connection between those named defendants with the enforcement of the act sufficient to provide a basis to confer jurisdiction. So the Texas officials argue that no state official has any connection with the enforcement of the act, in part because Section 207 of the act, entitled Limitations on Public Enforcement, provides that the requirements of this subchapter shall be enforced exclusively through the private civil actions that Melissa just mentioned. No enforcement may be taken or threatened by the state, a political subdivision, a district or county attorney, or an executive or administrative officer or employee of this state. The providers argue that state medical departments might still take action against licensed doctors who are in violation of the law, even if the department officials cannot sue under SB 8. The state officials argue that the department's general authority was limited by SB 8, which amends the laws governing the department's authority as follows. The department shall enforce this chapter except for subchapter H, which is SB 8, which shall be enforced exclusively through the private civil enforcement actions. We should note, however, that at least one complaint has been filed with the department overseeing doctors in Texas, alleging that a doctor licensed in Texas performed an abortion in violation of SB 8. And more generally, the providers argue that Ex parte Young represents a compromise necessary to permit the federal courts to vindicate federal rights and hold state officials responsible to the supreme authority of the United States. They say that states can't structure a law so as to evade any pre-enforcement review about the constitutionality of that law. Like, yeah, you do need to name a state official in order to challenge a state law as being unconstitutional, but a state cannot opt out of being sued altogether, right? The reason you can sue a state official is in order to ensure we have a regime of the rule of law and that isn't something a state can just opt out of the way Texas has tried to do here. The second important doctrine for purposes of oral argument is judicial immunity. The preceding arguments about sovereign immunity relate mostly to the law enforcement officers and the executive branch officials who would be the ones enforcing this law, but for its odd enforcement structure. But the plaintiffs in this case also sued state court judges and state court clerks, and these are the people who will clearly be involved in any litigation under SBA because they have to docket the cases and then ultimately dispose of the cases that are filed under the challenge statute. The state judges, however, argue that they are immune from suit because they would be acting in their general capacity as judges. Judges are absolutely immune from suits for damages when they are acting in their judicial functions. And this comes from a case from 1978 called Stump versus Sparkman. And side note, Stump versus Sparkman generally stands for the proposition of judicial immunity, but it is also a major reproductive rights case because the damages sought from the judge were in conjunction with a forced sterilization of a cognitively disabled woman. But I digress. 
The Supreme Court has also held that a plaintiff could obtain an injunction against a state magistrate judge who had a practice of setting bail and incarcerating persons who could not post bail for non-jailable offenses. This was Pulliam versus Allen, a 1984 decision of the court. I have to say, you know, I thought it was settled that you could seek injunctions against judges you know, when they are acting unconstitutionally. And it wasn't just me who thought this question was settled. Um, that is, whether judicial immunity bars you from suing a judge for injunctive relief. So the canonical federal court's casebook, Hart and Wexler, says, and I quote, the question left open in Consumers Union, that was a case about another topic, whether judicial immunity bars suits for prospective relief was dealt with in Pulliam. Dividing 5-4, the Supreme Court upheld the injunction. Now, Jonathan Mitchell's brief points out a passage in Ex parte Young that you can't enjoin judges just when they passively hear random cases brought before them. But I think that just misunderstands how the states are using the courts here as an interim threat in order to chill exercise of constitutional rights. And it also, again, misunderstands the compromise in Ex parte Young, which is the court requiring you to sue particular state officers in order to allow and ensure the state would be bound by the rule of law. But again, once Texas has opted out of that regime, it has altered the kind of underlying calculus. For similar reasons, I think the arguments that Texas and Mitchell make about how there isn't pre-enforcement review to challenge particular tort lawsuits also miss the point. Um, those tort lawsuits are, by necessity, one-off lawsuits announcing new theories before the state has necessarily endorsed them. Here, by contrast, you have a state inviting these lawsuits and explicitly authorizing them through SB 8. So the plaintiffs in this case also sued law clerks, and the immunity of law clerks depends on whether the clerks are assisting judges in performing a judicial function that would otherwise be entitled to immunity. If they are, then judicial immunity might attach. If they are not, then immunity does not attach. The providers argue that merely docketing a case isn't a judicial act. Um, the clerks argue that it is. Let's wrap this all up. So the providers are in the Supreme Court right now asking basically whether a state can insulate from federal court review a law that prohibits the exercise of a constitutional right by delegating to the general public the authority to enforce that prohibition through civil actions. So, you know, that sweeps in everything we just talked about. But as I think the question makes clear, and as we said at the outset, the predicate here is that what Texas has done involves prohibiting the exercise of a constitutional right. And so I think we're all going to be looking for some of the justices potentially showing their hands regarding the degree to which abortion remains a protected constitutional right. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Oklahoma recently approved the nation's first religious public school. You heard that correctly, a religious public school. If you've paid attention to the Supreme Court over the past few years, you probably noticed a trend. The Supreme Court's ultra-conservative faction gutted church-state protections in order to funnel public money to private religious schools. Oklahoma is Christian nationalist's latest test case, a blueprint for other conservative states to follow. Americans United for Separation of Church and State saw the dangerous precedent a religious public school would create across the country and promptly filed a lawsuit to stop St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School in Oklahoma. This is the latest effort to blur the lines between church and state. Taking tax money and directing it to a religious school that will indoctrinate students into a faith with plans to discriminate against anyone who doesn't adhere goes against the founding principles of our country. Americans United will keep fighting for freedom without favor, equality without exception. Keep up with this issue at au.org. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. 
Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. And now, United States versus Texas. This is the lawsuit by the United States against the state of Texas. Um, The United States sought an injunction, which the district court granted, and that injunction ran against state officials, including state court judges. And it prohibited them from, among other things, docketing and processing cases filed under SB 8. The Fifth Circuit stayed the district court's injunction for the reasons stated in Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, the case involving the providers, although, as we're about to explain, none of those issues are directly implicated in this case. Um, The Fifth Circuit also cited the reasons in Whole Woman's Health versus Jackson, the Supreme Court order on the abortion providers lawsuit, even though Sam Alito told me those orders aren't precedential. They're just opinions. (laughs) Is Is it Mitchell's brief that refers repeatedly to the holding of that short order? It's uh, it's just wild. I don't remember whether it's that one or Texas's. But there's just like a repeated, like the holding, the first part of the holding, the second part of the holding. It's like, this was a paragraph. Like, do they even have holdings? <laughs> it was so, it was wild. Um, anyway, so the first issue in the case is standing. So as we have mentioned previously on this podcast, standing requires a plaintiff to show that that plaintiff is injured by the law or the conduct that they are challenging. The United States here argues that it is injured in three ways. First, it says SB8 interferes with a variety of federal programs, federal officers, federal contractors by threatening liability where federal policies or regulation require officers or contractors to assist people in exercising constitutional rights, obtaining abortions, um, or where federal you know, law or policy permits federal officials to obtain abortions. Second, the United States argues that it has an interest in the enforcement of federal law, including the Constitution, where a state has structured a law so as to prevent individual citizens from holding the state to account for violations of federal law. And third, the U.S. argues, relying on In re Debs, that it has standing because the Texas law burdens interstate commerce. So Debs upheld a suit by the U.S. to enjoin a labor strike on the ground that the strike interfered with interstate commerce. A second issue in the case is whether the United States has a cause of action. A cause of action basically means the legal authorization to sue. Some law or tradition allows you to bring suit. And Congress wrote a statute that allows people whose constitutional rights were violated to sue. Section 1983 provides every person who, under color of any statute, subjects 
any citizen or other person to the deprivation of any rights secured by the Constitution shall be liable to the party injured. And Texas argues the United States doesn't have a similar cause of action to proceed against Texas. I think this, however, overlooks you know, the Supreme Court's repeated pronouncements that baked into the structure of the Constitution was the state's consent to suits brought by the federal government. That is, the authorization for those kinds of suits comes from the structure of the Constitution itself. A third issue is whether the injunction can run against the state, either where no state law enforcement officer is involved in the enforcement of the law or where the injunction would run against state judges. Again, I think this is confusing a bunch of issues. On one hand, whether there is state action, which there obviously is, and on the other, whether the United States has to point to a particular state official involved in the enforcement of the law, which it does not, given that the United States can sue Texas, but private individuals cannot, and so private individuals have to name particular state officers, but the United States does not. So, bold predictions. Dun, dun, dun. Leah, what do you think? You start. Um. You know, a part of me really thinks they will say that the United States lawsuit can proceed. Um, and if they say that and the abortion providers cannot, I think that will mean laws like SB8 come back with a vengeance during Republican administrations when Republican presidents will not sue to enjoin laws like this. Um, I also think the argument is likely to have, no matter what its ultimate outcome, real Handmaid's Tale vibes where three of the four lawyers arguing will be met. That seems right. I mean, as I think about how they could possibly write something that permits Texas to do what it has done, but tries to prevent states from doing the same thing with more favored constitutional rights to guns or, you know, religious liberty or things like that, I don't think they can. Like, I think if they let Texas do this, then it is then like off to the races. Like any state can decide to single out any disfavored constitutional right in this way. I think for, as you said at many episodes ago, Leah, it's I actually don't think blue state legislatures are interested in doing this. So I, I don't actually think we're in danger of seeing a lot of copycat laws involving different kinds of rights. But I just think if they allow this to stand, then it's kind of a brave new world. So 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 that's sort of observation one. Um, and observation two isn't really a prediction, but I just like, I do think it's worth noting that, you know, there's a longstanding debate, seems very active and pressing right now about whether and how public pressure affects the Supreme Court. And I do think the court's decision to take these cases and set them for argument as quickly as they did, and, you know, like bump some cases and rearrange the calendar and do all the things they had to do to get these cases teed up to here on November 1st, is a pretty strong indication that the court is paying attention to sort of public reaction to its work. And this tees up for me this perennially important and annoying issue, which is whose voices we take seriously. You know, the people raising criticisms were the ones that might have influenced the court, yet it will be the people who said or will say, calm down, ladies, it's all good, who will be given credit if and when the Supreme Court allows the United States lawsuit to proceed. Um, so just rethink them. some things, people. <laughs> It's also important not to lose sight of what Justice Sotomayor said in her solo dissent from the court's decision not to vacate the Fifth Circuit stay. Um, she mentioned that the harms from this law will never be reversed if or when SCOTUS ultimately allows a court to enjoin the law or even to strike it down. And this has been now almost two months by the time this case is heard uh, that People in Texas have been without the same constitutional rights that are enjoyed by the rest of the country. Yeah. Um, there is one other small thing to flag on that stay, which is that the court 
actually didn't deny the United States request to vacate the stay. It deferred it pending oral argument. And that may be a formulation that is like more routine than I remember. But it struck me as, you know, the court defers these jurisdictional or threshold questions and wraps them up with the merits. But for some reason, I think it doesn't necessarily always use this language of, you know, pending oral argument. So that may not be meaningful. But in theory, it seems to me possible that the court could rule on the request to vacate the stay before it necessarily decides the case. I I don't know. Maybe it's reading too much into it. But I did want to flag that seems like at least a possibility. The next case we're going to talk about is NYSERPA versus Bruin. And for this part of the episode, we are joined by Joseph Bloker, a professor at Duke Law School and an incredible scholar of the Second Amendment. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Let's give a bit of background here before we start peppering you with questions, Joseph. Um, This case is a challenge to New York's 108-year-old handgun licensing law that resembles the laws in a number of other states and cities. So anyone who wants a license to carry a concealed handgun outside of the home must show proper cause, which New York courts have interpreted to mean some special need above and beyond the needs of the general public. So here, the plaintiffs received restricted licenses to carry outside for target shooting and hunting, and one plaintiff can also carry his handgun to and from work. All right. So Melissa walked through the background of this case. So Joseph, let's bring you in here just to give sort of some of the constitutional background. In 2008, District of Columbia versus Heller, the court announces an individual right to own a gun for self-defense. Then in 2010, applies that right to the states in McDonald. And it's basically done nothing since. So the court has never said anything about how the right announced in Heller applies, if it applies at all, outside the home. And it really hasn't said much about how gun laws in general get scrutinized. So, you know, we're still really early in the development of Second Amendment doctrine. So can you give us a general general sense, Joseph, of what lower courts have done and how the parties are arguing the court here should sort of evaluate this law? Like, what should the legal standard and legal test look like? Sure, absolutely. I mean, since Heller, uh, there's been about 1,500 cases decided in state and lower courts. So we've got actually a lot of law to summarize here. But I think usefully, at least, the federal courts of appeal have unanimously endorsed a single test, a single framework, at least, often called the two-part framework or the two-part test. Uh, The first part of that framework is a sort of a threshold inquiry into whether the Second Amendment is in play at all, like whether the challenged gun regulation actually reaches people or arms or activities that are covered by the Second Amendment, because some things aren't. Heller tells us as much, that people who've been convicted of felonies, people who've been adjudicated mentally ill, dangerous and unusual weapons, they just fall outside the Second Amendment, kind of maybe in the same way that libel or securities fraud, although they involve words, fall outside the First Amendment, right? So that's step one of the two-part framework. Hundreds of those cases, probably at least a quarter or a half, are resolved at step one. For those cases that get past step one to the second part of the framework, courts apply kind of a sliding scale scrutiny with the scrutiny getting higher the more that the law reaches what Heller called the core interest of self-defense, especially in the home. So most laws end up being subject to something like intermediate scrutiny, and the vast majority of them have been upheld. But that's sort of the state of play so far. Now, there is a rising tide among some conservative judges, uh, and the sort of, I guess, the the one who put the wave in motion more than any other is uh, then-Judge Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit, who announced a test which has come to be known as the test of text, history, and tradition, which would evaluate gun laws based solely on those three things, or when they run out based on analogies to them. And in my brief and Bruin, filed in support of neither side, I argue against this test. So that's a distinct test from the two-part test that you just walked through, or it's just a slightly different gloss on the sort of second step. You know, you don't, it's not a traditional kind of, you know, heightened scrutiny, whether it's intermediate or strict, but it 
you know, it, it focuses less on kind of balancing government interests versus individual right and more sort of purely on what historical regulation has looked like and how similar this regulation is to history. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, the, the two-part framework definitely encompasses text history and tradition. What the test of text history and tradition leaves out, which the two-part framework includes, is some consideration of contemporary costs and benefits. So if we get to the second stage of the two-part framework and we're doing some level of scrutiny, well, then you're going to be asking the normal questions about, you know, has the government shown sufficient interest? Is this law sufficiently tailored um, to meet it? That all just seems to fall away in the test of text history and tradition, at least as then-Judge Kavanaugh described it. Uh, what I think is going to replace it is just a whole bunch of judicial intuitionism about whether a modern AR-15 is relevantly similar to a flintlock musket. And I just think that's just going to be a recipe for a complete chaos uh, and, and confusion and, you know, frankly, judicial discretion of the kind that originalists regularly purport to decry. I just want to highlight the specific analogy that you drew is actually not just a hypothetical. You know, the approach that you said is associated with then Judge, now Justice Kavanaugh from his time on the D.C. Circuit, the text history tradition approach was used in a case challenging a ban on assault rifles. And he used that approach to say, I would strike down the ban on assault rifles because I don't think it's sufficiently similar to, you know, the restrictions on flintlock guns. So again, like that is the approach that he has argued for and that some of the plaintiffs in this case are arguing for as well. And you can imagine the same kinds of questions being asked about all kinds of modern gun laws, like the federal rule that prohibits you taking an, a loaded gun into the cabin of an aircraft, right? What would James Madison have thought about that? Like, nothing coherent. It just makes no sense. Or, or what about, what about ghost the, guns? Or what like, about ghost or background guns? checks or, or even, to take right? another. Or background checks for that matter, or, I mean, to take another one, which I think is like a really, really important and sometimes underappreciated federal law, the Lautenberg Amendment, which prohibits possession by those convicted of crimes of domestic violence, right? Like, what does that, how does that law look from the perspective of the late Domestic 1700s? violence wasn't a crime then, it's QED, <laughs> suck it, libs, all the domestic <laughs> abusers can own handguns. That solves it. QED, I mean, it's a short opinion. It writes itself, right? And they can't be right. Like, the judges won't, I think, won't go that far, at least on all those laws. They're not going to start letting guns onto airplanes anyway. I worry more about the DV law, frankly. But it's just going to be a recipe for all kinds of neither here nor there judicial intuitionism, as I see it. So, so can I ask a question? Um, we recently did an episode um, that featured Carol Anderson, who is a professor at Emory, who's written a book called The Second, um, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And her argument, essentially, is something of an originalist argument. Like, if we're really going to go back to the founding moment of the Second Amendment, in fact, the Second Amendment is not about empowering state militias against a centralized government, but rather about empowering state militias as a means of putting down slave rebellions. And given this court's strong interest in remedying past racial injustices, doesn't that suggest that there is a kind of um, interesting racial justice aspect of the Second Amendment that history, text, and tradition might want to surface and vindicate here? Absolutely. And I worry, frankly, that the briefing thus far, and I don't want to fault, you know, the authors of briefs who are advocates, of course, for not approaching things in the nuance I'd want, from, want to see from a scholar. But what, what Carol Anderson's work shows and what others like Carl Bogus and other historians have shown is that at least some of the framers 
supported this, the ratification of the Second Amendment precisely because it would protect these armed militias, which were doubling as slave patrols. That's, I think, undeniable that that was at least one reason for supporting the ratification of the Second Amendment. Now, there are those who say that's not all there was to it, and there's lots more to the story, and as with any other you know, issue of race and history, it's just nuanced and complicated. This is what I worry about with the briefing. I mean, there are briefs about a quarter of the briefs in this case are making arguments that are explicitly about racial justice. Many of them in favor of the challengers. Court. They know this court I, is super woke. Woke Lido, woke, woke Lido has woke. been inviting those briefs. I'm genuinely interested to see Justice Thomas's first question at this oral oh, argument because it is going to be, it's going to be, I almost, I think I can almost script it. And I think it's going to be exactly on this theme. And it's going to be invoking maybe the public defender's brief, which has gotten a lot of attention. Um, it's not alone, though. Can we talk about the briefs a little bit? So um, sure. there are a number of briefs and they don't necessarily shake out in the way that you might expect them to. So you have a brief from the Brooklyn Defender Service and the Bronx Defenders and Black legal aid lawyers more generally that support the challengers. And the argument is that the imposition of these gun control laws redounds to the detriment of gun owners of color who are often the ones who are selectively targeted for enforcement. And there are lots of actual vignettes of individual African-American, Latino gun owners in the brief who have been charged with possession issues um, in other states, even though they are lawfully in possession of a gun somewhere else. So, so that's one brief. And, and it's sort of a surprising one. Um, there is another brief from J. Michael Ludig, Peter Keisler, Carter Phillips, and Stuart Gerson. Um, I don't know if they're all necessarily sort of staunch conservatives, but I, I think we definitely know that J. Michael Ludig is a staunch conservative. He is a former Court of Appeals judge on the Fourth Circuit. He also served as a general counsel for Boeing after leaving the bench. He was seriously considered for the seat that went to our fan, Samuel Alito. I don't know if we would have had nearly as much fun if J. Michael Ludig had gotten it. Um, but in any event, he is something of a household name, um, not the least of which because he was in the position of advising Vice President Pence um, about the prospect of the vice president throwing out the electors on January 6th. And he wrote a very consequential Twitter thread about it. In any event, J. Michael Ludig, um, along with these co-authors, has written a brief that comes down in favor of the state and argues that the history, text, and tradition of our country is one that permits states and municipalities to impose reasonable gun control restrictions on carrying guns in public. And then finally, there is an NAACP Legal Defense Fund brief that also supports the state um, and makes a number of racially tinged and racial justice arguments, but are on the completely different side of what we saw in the public defender's brief. So how is the court going to suss through these? Um, because I think there's a lot of information here from parties that they would be inclined to look at favorably. So let me start maybe by trying to summarize how I see some of the themes from the public defender's brief and the NAACP brief interacting. Because if you read them side by side, I think there actually is a pretty complete and nuanced story about the relationship between guns and race, both historically and today. So the public defender's brief on its own, I think, may overstate the degree to which gun laws, modern gun laws, are rooted in racism and may understate the degree to which gun laws are often rooted in anti-racism. So it's certainly true that gun laws historically, as Carol Anderson shows ably in her book, have been used to disarm in particular black Americans, but also Native Americans and other groups. 
But it's also true that, for example, during Reconstruction, it was a rare point of bipartisan agreement among Republicans and Democrats in certain states, including Texas, that gun laws should be used to protect exactly those groups from armed violence by white supremacist groups. So there's an anti-racist history there that matters, That's too. That's the Clarence Thomas narrative. Well, it is, but leaving out the part of gun regulations being used to protect those groups, right? It's the understating the anti-racist history that sort of concerns me because both of those threads are there. I don't know if I was going to say those threads point in different directions. I guess threads don't point. They pull, whatever, go in different directions. Um, but the, the other thing I think that really matters and that the public defender's brief so powerfully shows is the what matters to me more, which is the contemporary realities here. I mean, they're absolutely right that the burdens of the enforcement of gun laws, New York's federal law, whatever you want to talk about, are falling on black and brown communities wildly disproportionately. I mean, there's just no denying that. It's true of all criminal laws that I can, almost all criminal laws that I can think of. But the NAACP brief is right to point out too that the costs of deregulation are going to fall on those communities as well. I mean, black Americans are 10 times more likely to die of gun violence than white Americans. This is literally the leading cause of death for young black men. By the way, young black men and teenagers make up about 37% of the nation's gun homicides despite comprising about 2% of the nation's population. It's just wildly out of sync. And so I hope that the court ends up resolving that by leaving space for democratic politics to work out solutions, whether that means, you know, prosecute less the felon prohibitor, right? The, fel- the federal law that criminalizes possession by people convicted of felonies, which has enormously disproportionate impacts on black and brown communities. Maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you could focus on community violence and intervention and other things, non-carceral strategies, I guess. That would be one way to sort of resolve that. The other thing I would say about the public defender's brief, which again, I have a lot of sympathy for, and the stories they tell, which I think are really powerful, is that we have a doctrinal home for those kinds of arguments. That is that the, the state is acting in ways or this law is uh, inflected um, with forms of racial discrimination and that's the equal protection clause. And there is no equal protection argument in this case, I think because the presumably they figured they can't make one. Um, if there's that evidence, then I'd, f- I'd be fully in favor of, of, of that kind of challenge. Because the court has basically made it impossible to prove racial discrimination and this to invalidate laws because of their effects on race discrimination. Yeah. So part of what is so frustrating and dispiriting and bleak about this case for me is the problem that the public defender's brief correctly identifies with the enforcement of the laws, the court has basically removed that option from the table for using that as a basis to challenge this restriction or any of the other myriad restrictions, criminal restrictions that disproportionately fall on communities of color. And instead, the choice seems to be you either say you can't have these kinds of criminal laws or regulations that could, right, in some alternative form be used to actually improve public safety or, right, you only, it's just, it's so frustrating and sad that these are the options on the table. And it really is the question, Melissa, that, you know, Carol Anderson put, which is, what are you going to do given the background reality Mm -hmm. of anti-Blackness, right? Like, do you just say you can't regulate guns, which is going to create public safety risks? Or are you going to use this, like, extremely imperfect and potentially dangerous doctrinal apparatus to address this problem that it was never designed to do. 
What you just said there, Leah, I think is just so worth emphasizing. Like what we're seeing here kind of is like an effort to like give the Second Amendment an exemption from the kind of Arlington Heights kind of framework you would normally see for an equal protection challenge. It's like, well, that those roads were closed by self-proclaimed constitutional conservatives years ago. And it, it would be it would be, I think, dis- distasteful at the least to open it up just for this issue, like to get woke about gun rights alone, to open up these equal protection concerns for gun rights alone. And, you know, you may, conservatives may just have to choose between these principles. You know, that would be interesting. That goes, by the way, too, to the to the Ludig brief, um, which which Melissa mentioned. I mean, one of the things that's just so notable about that brief, which I think is, is quite powerful, is that, and I don't mean in this way to denigrate it. Again, I think it's a wonderful brief, but it's kind of the Notes version of Judge Bybee's opinion for the en banc night circuit in Young versus Hawaii just a few months ago, which is an exhaustive and lengthy retelling of the history of gun regulation going back at least until the statute of Northampton in 1328. And you can't come away with it and not be just, I think, impressed by just how deep and rich and broad that history is, which puts a different choice on the table for, I think, you know, judicial conservatives. Is You may have to choose here between originalism of a certain kind and expansion of gun rights because as it happens, the history is, I mean, especially in the years since Heller has decided that it has become clear that the history here is incredibly rich, uh, the, the history of regulation. Right. And, and it does seem not at all irrelevant, the identities of, you know, Judge Bybee, obviously known conservative on the Ninth Circuit, and Judge Ludig. I mean, I think that Ludig's co-signatories on the brief all served in Republican administrations. I don't think they're by any means all staunch conservatives the way Ludig is. You know, it just reminded me of this like really dispiriting conversation I had with a Supreme Court litigator like months ago, not actually even about this case. And I asked whether he thought a particular amicus brief would make a difference. And again, not about this case. And he was like, well, it depends on who signs it. And they sort of paused and said, and maybe what it says. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but like there's a real kernel of insight there, which is the justices care a lot yeah. about like, what the friends on their side of the aisle are saying about these hard questions. And I do think the fact that there is this, you know, kind of amplifying chorus that started like right after Heller. I mean, Wilkinson, obviously, um, also Fourth Circuit judge, was extremely critical of Scalia's history and Heller right after the opinion came down. And so it's not as though this recent chorus is a new one, but it's certainly getting louder. And I think that that actually feels like it could make a difference in the way the justices take a look at the history. And I think, as Joseph just said, like, the history of regulation is really hard to deny. That is absolutely right. And yet, of course, there are ways to cut and trim, and we'll certainly see um, there's a lot of sort of frame shifting happening in this case, as you know, is common in litigation. But, you know, there, the, Paul Clement will say for the challengers, um, as he has throughout the briefing, is like, this is just about the right to bear. You know, Heller gave us the right to keep, but the right says keep and bear. And if bear means anything, it's got to be a right to, that extends outside the home. And that's really all we're saying. And New York will say, hopefully in response, that's not all you're asking for. We allow carry outside the home. You're asking to a right to carry outside the home without proper cause. We, like every state, allow some form of public carry. That, that's actually a question I wanted to put to you, Joseph, which is I have to say it's not actually that clear to me what it is these plaintiffs who are represented by Paul Clement are asking for specifically, right? Like they are arguing the New York law is unconstitutional. But what do they think states can do, if anything, to regulate the carrying of guns outside of the home? So, you know, I think we are all pretty clear that the court is going to say, yes, Heller extends outside the home, but obviously it matters a great deal how they say it and, and, and what they say states can do. They may, you know, just, again, punt and let the lower courts work it out for a while, but say the New York law falls whatever the standard is and whatever the test should look like. But 
are they actually seeking a ruling that the Second Amendment requires states to give literally every person, maybe like subject to a few of the exceptions set out in Heller, who wants permission to carry a gun, the ability to do that? Like, what are they asking for? It's it's, an, it's a fascinating question, and I have to admit, like you know, going back and rereading the briefing, I'm sometimes not sure myself. I mean, to to say that would fly in the face of Heller. I think it would be a. I think that might even be a loser. I mean, I don't think that even even the court's most staunch gun rights conservatives are willing to embrace. The, the way it's described in the brief sometime, which is a right to carry, keep and bear an arm for the purposes of self-defense, which can arise whenever and wherever a person happens to be. Like, that can't be right. I mean, Heller specifically says the right doesn't extend into sensitive places like schools and government buildings. And if that argument's made, I would hope that Barbara Underwood for the state would immediately say, in this building? Like, really? Whenever, wherever? Like, that can't. You, come on. Like, that can't but be is, right. Isn't this kind of a long game approach? I mean, this strikes me as being not unlike the campaign to piecemeal dismantle Roe, right? I mean, it may not be the case that it's on the wall now to get rid of any kind of meaningful restriction for holding a gun in public, but just chip away, chip away, chip away. And suddenly, and like we're 10 years later, what was off the wall now seems on the wall and, and perfectly plausible and reasonable because we've normalized it to such an extent. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, Reva Siegel's really powerful piece in the Harvard Law Review right after Heller came down tells the story basically of how Heller shows that, um, yeah. that it, when it came down, 75% of Americans said they agreed with the basic holding. Um, but it was, a, it was a remarkable change in the meaning of the Second Amendment. You know, Kate was there for the <laughs> for, for ground zero on that. A um, most competent no, 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 not most. most no, 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 Don't give me permission. Especially <laughs> competent. Especially competent. I'm not, I'm not totally sure what kind of compliment it was. But, but yes, I was there. I clerked that term, and Joseph was one of the lawyers who you know, represented D.C. So we earned our stripes on the Second Amendment. Yeah, yeah that's right. Can't seem to quit it. Um, but to your point, Melissa, I mean, I think one of the things that's really extraordinary about this case is exactly the way it interacts with what we're seeing. If you sort of like, you know, open the uh, sort of frame a little bit about like what's happening with gun rights and regulation outside of the Second Amendment. I mean, where we started, which is exactly right, is the court has basically been on the Supreme Court has basically been on the sidelines. There's been a lot of litigation, but not a lot of gun laws have been struck down. One of the reasons for that is that we have so, as a country overall in most places, so thoroughly deregulated guns over the last 20 or 30 years. Like, this is a case about how the right extends outside the home. Well, if you look back to 1987, there was only one state, Vermont, which had permitless carry. Now there's 21. Right? That's not because of constitutional holdings of courts. That's just because of you know, states adopting what some of them call, by the way, constitutional carry, but has nothing to do with you know, Second Amendment holdings. You know, likewise, these, these may issue laws like New York's, which today exist, depending on how you count, in six to eight states, they were on the books in 26 states in 1987, like the majority of states covering the vast majority of the population. So it's almost like a sort of constitutional calcification of this rapid statutory deregulation um, that I think is being pushed. And Melissa, I think you're right to say it is an incremental strategy, but we're way into it. Um, it's happening already. We should also say that um, you note that the court has mostly been on the sidelines for this, and that is not necessarily by choice for at least some of the members. So there have been a number of cert petitions, and in 2020, I think there were 10 pending at one time, and the court did not grant cert on them, and that prompted a very vehement and spirited dissent from Clarence Thomas, who has bemoaned the idea that the Second Amendment has basically become what he calls a second-class constitutional right. So the court has been sidelined, but not necessarily by choice. And there certainly have been some justices who have been chomping at the bit to get something like this. And, you know, I think the real question is, 
you have a table, do you have a party of five? That second class right line that you mentioned, Melissa, is another thing I think to look for at oral argument. I mean, this has become the dominant rhetorical move of gun rights advocates um, really in the last few years. I can tell you a better a, second class constitutional, right? It's it's amazing. This is the only one. I mean, to go back to Justice Alito, I mean, his remarkable speech with the Federalist Society, like calling out this as, I think he said, the ultimate second class right in the eyes of some, as if like this is... <laughs> truly the right that the the gun owners and gun rights are the ones who are the most persecuted groups in the United States, which again, I mean, you see in not, not just in public, you know, letters to the editor, I mean, in scholarship references comparing the lower court's response to Heller in terms of massive resistance, like literally using that phrase as if what we're seeing here is relevantly similar to the South's response to Brown versus Board of Education, like implicitly comparing gun owners today to black school children in the South in the late 1950s. Like that's the mindset. And Justice Thomas himself has described the Second Amendment as a constitutional orphan, has used this sort of second-class rights framework. Eric Rubin of SMU and I have a piece coming out uh, in the Georgetown Law Review tracking this sort of phrase, the use of the second-class rights phrase, because it really begins with Justice Alito's opinion in McDonald. That's the first time you really see it showing showing up. But the, it, the, the remarkable uptick in briefs and in judicial opinion since then, I think, signals where, uh, you know, at least some justices and judges and certainly a lot of advocates see themselves. So we'll keep an eye out for that kind of rhetoric at the oral argument. I have one final question, which is, um, is the 1328 statute of Northampton going to be important in the oral argument or dispositive in the oral argument? Those, those are that's fantastic. I, I, I want to say in response, it depends which of the two right. versions of the reported case Rex v. Knight. Right, the, the, the Knights I mean, bench get it, the statute wrong, right? I mean, this is absurd <laughs> that this is the ground on which this case is going to be fought, but it seems like it is. I think that's right. I mean, the statute of Northampton. It, it, it's th- this is a, a statute from 1328 um, under the, the the reign of Edward III, um, which among other things prohibited the carrying of um, weapons in fairs and markets to the terror of the people. Blackstone referred to it. It was widely forms of it were widely adopted in the colonies. And in fact, one almost word for word version, taking out the reference to the king, still exists in states, including uh, where I am here in North Carolina. It, the the focus given to the statute of Northampton, I think, just baffles people who are not in this debate. It baffles British historians whenever I bring this up with them, like. What do you guys think about the statute of Northampton and how it applies to you know modern regulation of guns in the United States? And like, what are you talking That's about? That's the correct why, reaction. Why would it? That makes yeah. no sense at all. Um, but I guarantee that it will be a big part. Um, so I guess I, I, I'm almost leaning towards the dispositive there, Kate. I don't want to t- <laughs> take the high bid, but um, it's certainly going to be a big part of the. It's a bit yeah. of being part of the briefing, and I'd be surprised if it doesn't come up at oral argument. It's really a condemnation of well, the whole enterprise. Well, let's drink every time That's we right. hear it. Let's let's drink. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we hear that. It's early in the day, the argument, if you're listening live, but, you know. Whatever would be appropriate for medieval England. Pour yourself a big tankard of, you know, mead. It's like rock. Exactly. Awesome. All right, Joseph, thank you so much. That was so illuminating. Really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. So the last case we wanted to flag is something of a sleeper case, which is Houston Community College versus Wilson. And this case is about whether the First Amendment restricts the authority of an elected body to censure a member for their speech. The case involves the Board of Trustees for the Houston Community College system. The trustees serve for six years without compensation. And Wilson was elected to the board. While in office, he filed lawsuits against the Houston Community College system. He's accused of leaking confidential information. He attacks the community college system's anti-discrimination policy and other things as well. The board votes six to one to reprimand him for violating board rules and imposing significant legal costs on the board. Wilson responds that the reprimand is never going to stop him. 
He orchestrates some negative robocalls targeting other members' constituents and gives an interview criticizing other board members. He hires agents to investigate a fellow board member and the Houston Community College system and maintained a private website using the community college system's name. He also files a fourth lawsuit against the Houston Community College after a board member voted by video conference. The board formally censured Wilson, which made him ineligible for election to the board officers and ineligible for reimbursement for college-related travel. It also required board approval to access funds in his community affairs account. It recommended that he complete training and warned that repeating his behavior might constitute grounds for further disciplinary action. He alleges that the censure amounts to prohibited First Amendment retaliation, and the Fifth Circuit, despite finding for the college on a number of points, held that he could proceed with this novel First Amendment retaliation claim. He tries to distinguish the censure here from a normal censure, saying that this involved additional penalties. Okay, so some questions this case raises. Does impeachment violate the First Amendment, which, of course, impeachment is the ultimate in cancel culture? Kate, I feel like (laughs) you have several articles which speak to these questions. Yeah, I mean, definitely Wilson's entire case is incredibly similar to Trump's First Amendment defense to the second impeachment trial. You know, he's like, look, the thing you're going after is my speech and the First Amendment protects me against the sanction that you're pursuing. And I think it was a terrible argument when Trump made it in in his impeachment defense, and I think it's a terrible argument here, right? The fact that something is speech does not insulate it from all accountability, right? Whether we're talking about the constitutional remedy of impeachment or, as here, the familiar remedy, you know, long available to legislatures and legislative bodies like this one, of censure, right? So this conduct was outrageous. The First Amendment clearly to me, does not disable the board from responding, doesn't insulate him from all accountability. And the board's response clearly took the form of censure, which itself is a form of constitutionally protected counterspeech. So for the court to find that the First Amendment disables the board from engaging in its own First Amendment activity to protect the First Amendment interests of Wilson seems to me like a just bananas argument. Um, And yet, again, at least on this one small aspect of his claim, the Fifth Circuit allowed him to go forward. One thing to flag um, is that, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the ACLU, Mm -hmm. interestingly, along with Alan Gura of Heller fame, he brought and argued Heller in the Supreme Court, um, filed a brief in support of Wilson. So there's not a huge amount of amicus activity in this case, but there are some briefs in support of the college. And, you know, the United States has filed a brief in support of the college, underscoring um, the kind of importance of the central remedy. And the only brief in support of Wilson, I think, is this ACLU Alan Gurr brief. And I couldn't help wondering whether this brief was meant to kind of like troll that New York Times article from last summer that we talked about on the podcast, which yeah. is like about how the ACLU, once a bastion of free speech, is like has lost its way and is having an identity crisis. Is the ACLU being like, oh, no, we'll defend any speech? That's that's a vibe. Well, I mean, <laughs> if justices hit the Huskings to disclaim their partisan inclinations, you know, why not? Who knows? Um I I will note that when that article came out, the ACLU was very quick to note that they had a bunch of free speech cases um, that were being litigated at the time. So not clear that they would have to prove their free speech bona fides by intervening in this particular case. But there we are. They're doubling down. Um, Anyway, it's a fascinating case. There's lots more to say about it. But because we are really short on time, um, let's leave it there. And then maybe we'll, you know, do a little bit more when it comes to debriefing the first week of the sitting. Yes, since we are inevitably going to have a separate episode on 
SB8 Squid Game, um, and then <laughs> a separate episode on the rest of the arguments. So um, that's probably all we have time for today. Stay tuned for forthcoming episodes recapping these cases and covering the other arguments on the court's November sitting. Those arguments include United States versus Vio Madero about the exclusion of Puerto Rico from the Social Security Act, Ramirez versus Collier about whether a state can deny someone the ability to pray with and be touched by their religious advisor, while in the execution chamber, and FBI versus Fasaga about whether the statutory scheme established by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and specifically FISA's review of classified material regarding electronic surveillance, displaces the state secrets privilege in that context. That case stems from an FBI operation from 2006 and 2007 in which agents sent a paid informant to mosques in Orange County, California, and had the informant pose as a convert to Islam. The informant then gathered information on hundreds of Muslim Americans, and community members actually reported the informant to the FBI because he was acting so strangely. That case will be argued by Ahilan Arulatham, um, professor from practice and co-director of Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA and former senior counsel at ACLU Southern California. Speaking of the oral argument calendar, there are 27 slots on the calendar, 25 lawyers arguing because Judd Stone, representing the state of Texas, needed to argue three times for Texas, including in both of the cases involving SB8. Interesting. Um, of those 27 slots with 25 lawyers, five of the lawyers arguing are women. So thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. Thanks to Eddie Cooper for making our music. Thanks to Sam Alito for providing us with endless fodder. And thanks to all of you for supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a Glow supporter at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. I'm Jessica Reeves, and I've been analyzing and reporting on extremism for the last 10 years, and I have the gray hair to prove it. Subscribe to our podcast, Extremely, for an always eye-opening look inside the daily work of exposing, fighting, and disrupting all facets of extremism. My co-host, Oren Siegel, and I explore this ever-changing landscape and bring you stories of people and places impacted by extremism, those who fight to protect our communities, and those who offer new perspectives. You can find Extremely wherever you listen to podcasts. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.